Hello. Welcome to People Data Insights. This is Paul Ryman, founder and managing partner of Novo Insights, and thanks for listening once again. Spring is here, um, or I guess if you live in the Midwest like me, spring is here again, and spring will go away and become winter and then become spring again. Uh, but as the weather turns, as the calendar turns, I hope that spring and uh, this new season is treating you well. Uh, today's focus, I want to just do a couple of, I guess, quick hitters, right? Some, there's some big topics that have been happening in the, in the world of HR over the past few months, really in the world, it's not just HR, um, that we've published some content, we've had some conversations, but it feels like maybe a little bit more is helpful. Um, after our last three-part series on pay transparency, I got a number of emails. It's like, hey, Paul, you know, you, you told us the law changed. You told us what people are doing and posting, and you've predicted the future, but you kind of forgot to, to give us some thoughts on what do we do next, <laughs> right? How do we actually ad- adopt t- to this or adapt to this and make it work with an organization? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, I also, you know, we started this podcast not long ago, and, and early on we talked about the, the hype and hope of certain technologies and how they would impact our world. You know, artificial intelligence was part of it. And, you know, chat GPT is sort of a thing, and it's really come about in a big way in, in the mainstream. So I feel like it's worth revisiting and chatting a little bit more about our take on what's going on in generative AI and AI in general within HR just as an update, given so much that has happened and some particular kind of headlines and product announcements that have even occurred um, in the AI space. So that's going to be the focus today. It's just me sort of giving you my take and my update on these topics. So apologies if you're looking for another voice today. Um, We'll get back to having some guests on here in the future. So why don't we start actually with the AI topic. And, you know, chat GPT is unavoidable at this point. In, in terms of its prevalence in the media and on LinkedIn. Um, you know, the pace of usage is, is truly amazing. 100 million active monthly users just two months after launch, which is totally ridiculous. Um, you know, and if, if you haven't spent your time playing with it, you need to. And, and some folks like me have probably spent too much time really understanding how it works and seeing what its capabilities are. Um, you know, a lot of us spent time trying to trick it right? Uh, can we get it to say something wrong? <laughs> can we, uh, you know, ask it really weird or complex questions and see how it handles them? Um, but that's part of how we learn a new technology. That's part of how we adapt. Um, I even found myself being like polite with it at first, you know, maybe it's just me being afraid of the robot turning on me, but, you know, continually asking please and saying thank you after its response, which I don't think necessarily helps the the conversation with a robot, but, um, it, it was. It became very human, and I found myself treating it very human-like. Um, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, sort of belaboring, you know, what the technology is, how it's changing things. I think there's plenty of content out there. Um, we won't get into the technical side of how it's built and what makes it amazing. Um, you know, but but there are some some aspects of that that I think are are worth briefly touching on. Which is one, you know, Brian and I talked about whether AI was hype, uh, you know, a few months ago. And I think this is showing what we meant when we said that there's true promise here, that there are absolutely use cases within the world of HR that are going to change the way that we work. Uh, I think ChatGPT has made that very real and tangible to people leaders around our space. The other thing I think it's worth, um, you know, talking a little bit about is, 
you know, the applications for HR? Like, what are some of the specifics? I'm going to link in the show notes uh, a great article from a friend of mine, Jesse Meschuk, that was in Fast Company um, about sort of some specific applications um, of ChatGPT that can unlock productivity within the HR space. You know, one one place I think for for this audience in particular that I've found use, even in my own work already, um, it's a great starter tool for kind of HR artifacts, right? Like job descriptions, competency guides, level descriptors. Um, you know, things where you, you want to be an editor, not a creator, as, fa- as fast as possible. It's hard to come up with new words in that space. And if you think about what ChatGPT really is doing, right? It's essentially a text predictor that sort of understands your question and then constructs text that it believes is the best response based on how your text compares to other text found on the internet, right? So its data set is the internet, and it says, okay, well, if Paul uses the words level, descriptor, you know, and maybe some specific prompts around what it wants to see, it's going to go out and construct a paragraph or a set of bullets, whatever you ask it to do, that it thinks is a good response based on other times that those text strings have been used. Um, so it's actually quite good um, at producing content. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science content, right? It, it, it can do some pretty impressive tasks, but in many cases, you know, it's not going to be perfect. It just gives you a really good starting point from which to edit. Um, you know, there there have been some reports of some problematic you know, responses and prog- problematic language that have come back. Since, of course, it's being trained on the entire internet, and the entire internet's not necessarily filled with things you want to put in your HR materials. But if you use your human eyes, your human judgment around, okay, well, it said this, you know, if I change this a little bit, or, oh my gosh, that's actually quite offensive, I need to change that. You know, that's an edit exercise, and so many of us are better at responding and changing something that already exists. So it it gives you a great first draft on those concepts. And keep in mind, it's, it's sourcing from a lot of things on the internet. So it's understanding other things that have been published, other ideas, other practices. So it isn't necessarily you know, innovating for you. It is, it is curating and collecting good ideas or things that have been posted um, somewhere, content that, that exists on the internet, and curating it into a unique response based on your prompt. Um, there's a particular skill to asking the right question. Um, again, I won't go deep into it, but it's really important um, to not just say, give me level criteria. Like, it'll do that, but if you ask it differently and say, you know, I'd like a set of level criteria for five job levels that have four behavioral indicators for each um, with three, you know, bullet points and no more than 200 words, right? I, I made that up, but that more specific prompt is going to give you a better quality response because it's going to conform to those requirements. Um, you can even have it um, act as somebody. Say, like, you, know, you be a manager and respond to this question that I'm asking you as an employee, and it will give you a response as if a manager is responding to it. So there's a skill to prompting it in the right way, um, even if you're using it just to sort of generate starter content from which you're going to edit and, and produce other HR artifacts. So just keep that in mind. But that's, there's a massive opportunity for productivity enhancements for your people team today by using ChatGPT to just start uh, your concepts, start your content, rather than you know, ask people to start from scratch. 
The other application that's, you know, I guess kind of obvious because it's the user interface against which ChatGPT is built, which is the chatbot, right? So I ask a question and I get an answer. So there's plenty of discussion about, well, how does this change the HR service model where employees are asking a robot the question and getting, you know, a quality answer like it's getting from ChatGPT? Um, you know, definitely there's a lot that's going to happen, already happening in that space. The one thing it's, it's worth pointing out is, you know, ChatGPT isn't going to solve that problem directly right away. Um, you know, it's focused on data on the public web, not your policies and your data. So, you know, ChatGPT is very good for answering a question like, what is a deductible? It's not very good at answering a question, what is our deductible? Um, now, is that very trainable and possible? Absolutely. And you can expect, you know, very quick innovation on personalizing, essentially, or, you know, companyizing. I made that word up, you know, a chat bot that does what it needs to do to be more specific within your space. And there's already examples of it, but the innovation pace is only going to accelerate now that people understand how to apply these models. So what, what ChatGPT has really done is it's brought AI into the spotlight even more so than it was before because this is so consumable and it, it's, it's made it fun to an extent. You know, within the HR world, we actually had an interesting kind of thing come up around AI as a counterweight uh, to the excitement of ChatGPT, and it was a, a lawsuit filed against Workday. Again, I'll file or I'll uh, post the link in the show notes. You know, about their talent acquisition automations being discriminatory. I'm not going to weigh in on the merits of the case. It's not my purpose here. I'm certainly not a lawyer. I have been a user of Workday and their recruitment systems, and I'm skeptical of the credibility of the lawsuit, but that's not my place to judge. Um, you know, but it does shine a light on appropriate ethical and careful use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, and on the heels of that, I, I don't believe it's related to the lawsuit. Maybe it is. Um, but Workday has, as part of their innovation kind of rollouts that occur this time of year have talked more about how they're going to utilize machine learning um, with being more you know specific specific use cases that just make things easier within our systems um, you know it's it's different than the large language models and the chat GPT stuff that's getting all the attention right what workday's talking about is just simpler innovations that make it easier um, you know, an example, this is not an example that Workday used, but it's one that I know I struggled with when I was a Workday customer in my operating life. You know, during a comp cycle, you want to handle promotions. You know, promote in place. Somebody who's not changing roles, but, you know, you want to elevate from a senior this to a principal that, or from a comp analyst to a senior comp analyst, whatever the story is. Um, <clears throat> so in Workday, that means you have to change somebody's job profile or changing their job code for those of you that aren't Workday users. And a, and a common debate is, well, who does that? Does a manager know which job profile to pick? Um, are they going to get it wrong if there's, you know, a lot of companies have too many job codes, right? You're, you're not alone if you're in that camp and you just worry about, well, people pick the one I want them to pick rather than the one that happens to live somewhere in the system. You know, and an example of how, you know, what Workday describes they want to use machine learning to do, you know, might be, look, it's going to realize that, you've not used this one orphaned job code forever. And this is the one that comes next in that progression, right? So that's, that's a prediction model, right? Where it can default and prompt and autofill, you know, responses that just make sense based on the rest of the data within your Workday tenant and what Workday knows about how people use Workday. So that's a, like not a sexy enhancement. That's super simple compared to, you know, the fun and games of ChatGPT. 
but but that does improve the the user experience of the software. It decreases errors within your data. It makes the job of being a people analyst easier because the data is cleaner from the get go. Um, you know, so I think I'm just using the the workday announcement as an example, and I'll link their broader announcement in the show notes. Um, just around how now is a time of acceleration of the use cases and the you know the both the simple and the broad innovations that can make people work more productive using AI and machine learning. You'll see outside of Workday, plenty of uh, product innovation is occurring. I'll, I'll highlight you know one in particular company, Orgnostic, uh, launched some tools in beta form that allow for kind of natural language consumption of people metrics, right? So you could say, you know, I'd like to see a sales turnover report for the past six months. You know, not having to build metrics in a kind of BI format, but asking it. Um, And it understands it. And it can surface, you know, a line chart that shows turnover for sales over the last six months. Um, They've also uh, released in beta some things uh, where it it can be more um, prescriptive then and surface, okay, well, you're asking about sales turnover, where can I find best practices that speak about how to reduce sales attrition and surfacing that? So, you know, very interesting usage of, you know, language-based AI, generative AI within a people analytics concept. Um, so kudos to them for their release in beta. I haven't seen it. I, I'm not a, uh, I don't get kickbacks. I'm just highlighting it as a particularly interesting release that, uh, that came out recently. I'll put a link in the show notes about their announcement there. Those new innovations shouldn't overshadow, you know, some other things I think that have been out there and people are forgetting about in the world of AI. Um, there's some great mach- machine learning tools, kind of purpose built for HR, whether it's One Models AI or um, some of the predictive analytics tooling that exists within Avisier. Um, you know, there's been great innovation here, you know, but I think it's clear now with ChatGPT and with other announcements, sort of what the promise is and what some of these new use cases of AI are for HR. So I think a, a key takeaway maybe from this as you are engaging with your HR tech ecosystem, you know, make sure you're asking questions about their AI strategy. Um, you know, how will they be using artificial intelligence, uh, language generation, language models, machine learning to, to be more productive, right? To help you do the job easier, to make their tools easier to use, um, be it for you know, the, the people team or for employees or managers. Or how is it going to you know, surface greater insights? How is it going to find best practices? How is it going to make it easier to produce thoughtful and insightful content? So a lot going on, obviously. I, I can't stop myself from talking about artificial intelligence. It's just a passion area for me. It's a super fascinating time to be engaged in it. Um, I've really enjoyed engaging with ChatGPT, even the new Ch- uh, GPT-4 model, and really understanding what its capabilities are. It's, it's incredible. Uh, and to see how it, how fast that's come and what it, what's possible. I want to pivot now and talk about sort of the other hot topic uh, within our space around pay transparency. As I mentioned, we we you know we did a multi-part podcast uh, series here on it, but I got a lot of feedback about like, well, help me understand how to make this work now. It's not just so much about yeah, I got to put something in a posting, um, and what might happen in the future around the impact of this, but. It's disruptive within many organizations. When you post the job and you say that the salary is going to be between seventy and eighty thousand, there's a number of challenges that can come up within an organization. Well, I don't make seventy thousand, um, and I'm in that job, so I need a raise. Or somebody who thought they were a peer to that job, going, "Oh, well, should I apply for that job because it makes more than me?" 
Um, you know, or maybe even somebody who makes more and saying, hmm, why is it that that range is lower? Am I overpaid? Am I at risk, you know, given the, the environment that we're in? So there's a number of challenges that can, that can come. Um, you know, I think for a long time, pay transparency was the future boogeyman, right? So comp leaders, comp practitioners thought a lot about, okay, you know, transparency's on the rise. It probably started to feel that way, particularly with the California law a couple of years ago. But I think many people are still, you know, as we've mentioned before, are caught a little flat-footed by this. Um, this is no longer a coming attraction. Like, pay transparency is quite real. And now is the time, um, you know, to, to have a clear view as to where you want to go and how you're going to get there. I'd advocate that this is an opportunity for, for you as a comp leader or as a people leader to take a leadership position. Um, and it's an opportunity for you to increase trust and increase the talent magnetism within your organization. So rather than be victimized by pay transparency, oh, we have to post that range because of this law, see it as an opportunity, right? Don't have this done to you. Make it work within your organization. Uh, we published a blog that you know addresses a lot of the content here in terms of what we think organizations need to do. Um, but I'll, I'll summarize some of the key points um, one is to recognize that the end game here isn't necessarily that everyone knows what everyone is paid. I remember seeing some exhibits from some other consultancies, I won't name, uh, in the past that sort of suggested pay transparency was a spectrum that starts with you don't tell anybody anything and ends with everybody's salary is posted on the wall. Um, I don't think that's the way to frame this. Um, you know, I don't think the end game is everybody knows what everyone is paid. Of course, there are certain industries where that is the case. Um, you know, why is that not the end game? I think in part because while some workers and many and, and some research would suggest younger workers in particular are more willing to be fully transparent around their pay, it's very different to have you tell me what you're paid versus the employer choosing to tell me how much you're paid, right? So a voluntary disclosure versus a required disclosure. Um, I also think just there's still multiple perspectives within the workforce. There always will be. And I'm not sure that leaders are comfortable with that level of outcome yet because there are some legitimate pressures around flexibility, around attracting specific skills that are hard to explain or about rewarding for performance that, um, you know, you don't necessarily want there to be as much transparency sometimes um, around a low performer. And, and how, how much do you want to rub their nose in the fact that they didn't get as much as somebody else? So it's, it's not so much about having a fully open book um, and knowing what everyone else is paid. I think the near-term focus is more around opportunity transparency, range transparency. Are we going to be clear about what your range is? Are you going to know what the next range is for your role? Are you going to know what all of the ranges are? Right. So there's questions more about the structure and how do you be more transparent with people about what's possible uh, in terms of comp outcomes? We also can be more transparent, not just around how much and the structure, but around decision-making. Um, so we'll talk more about kind of some near-term enablement that needs to be done for managers and leaders around how decisions are made and being prepared to respond to that um, when employees question it. I think a, a big takeaway now is to really examine what your comp philosophy is. And I, I've been you know, not huge on comp philosophies in my past, largely because I think too many of them were simple. Um, you know, you go to chat GPT and say, give me a written comp philosophy and it'll get, it'll give you one. 
it's just generic, right? Oh, we want to attract and retain top talent by offering a competitive comp package. Sure. Like, of course you want that. Um, what I've come to appreciate, and now what I drive with my clients, is a comp philosophy is less about um, you know, those generic statements, but it's more about navigating the trade-offs that you will need to make while managing a compensation program. Um, you can't have all things, right? Like there is a tension and a trade-off at times between transparency and flexibility. Um, you know, do you want to focus more for the short term and the long term? How much does performance drive certain pay decisions? Um, you know, there's more tactical things around how do you think about localization of pay within a country based on cost of labor? Well, how do you balance internal versus external equity? Um, you know, are you attracting talent on the basis of pay or is pay more of a, a threshold factor within your comp strategy? So those are trade-offs, right? And there's no right answer to those. It's more about how do you navigate them, how are you clear about them, and how do you operate consistently within them? Um, so now's a good time to ask yourself those questions um, and be clear about what you're trying to accomplish with your comp philosophy. That said, it's sort of a necessary step, but it's not sufficient um, and that's because most employees simply won't care, right? They don't need to care about your strategy. They care about why they get paid what they get paid. So the, the comp philosophy sets context and sets the stage for that decision, you know, but ultimately it manifests itself in the form of like programs and guidelines. So making transparency work is really about being ready to explain those programs more clearly uh, to employees. Pay ranges is where all the attention is going to be in the near term because that's what the legislation's pointing towards. And that's a pretty tangible thing for an employee to understand, right? They want to know why their salary is what it is. Um, you know, the, the, one of the challenges right now is that, you know, lots of organizations have salary structures, of course, but very few of them have changed them since the transparency wave has come. Um, and I don't know if our ranges were built for public consumption. Um, so now's a good time to take a step back and think about, are your ranges working the way you need them to, given given transparency rather than just are they, you know, fitting the rules that we've had in the past. Three things that I'm seeing um, as micro trends maybe, I, I wouldn't call them broad trends yet, but in my client work and in what I've been monitoring in the data um, that you might want to think about as you are um, building or, or evaluating your ranges. So one is I'm seeing them narrow a little bit. Um, so because they have to be posted, and, you know, there's some psychology around people anchor to the top of the range. Um, you know, narrowing ranges, which reduces some flexibility, but makes it easier to be more transparent around uh, that range. I'm seeing a number of organizations formalizing what I call new hire zones. So it's a subset of their broader range. But like, hey, when we hire from the outside, we expect to hire within this. And making that a more formal construct so it's easier to scale uh, the pay transparency rules in job postings. And then the third is, um, you know, while there are organizations who pay nationally, right? I don't care where you are, I'm going to pay the same salary. Um, there are other organizations that in the past had more location agnostic ranges, and they, they would just say, well, we'll pay a little higher in the range for higher cost of labor markets. That's becoming problematic in this era of transparency because people in those lower cost markets are seeing the same range or they're aware they're in that range. Um, so having some differentiation for location, I think, is becoming a bit more normal. Where you differentiate based on location. So rather than using the width of the range to pay for location differences, having a different range so it's easier uh, to communicate what that means. 
I mentioned earlier, it's not just about the range and how much people are paid, but being ready um, to explain how decisions are made and, and um, you know, making sure that the processes and policies are ready for transparency as well. So now's a great time to think about, in particular, your promotion guidelines. You know, how do you think about promotions? What are the pay implications of a promotion? For those of you who uh, just wrapped up your comp cycle, this is less helpful now, but you know, certainly as you plan for the future, or those who have a, a non-calendar year comp cycle, you know, what guidelines are you going to give and how are those going to be ready for managers to communicate the decisions that they make? Um, you know, that's a, an opportunity for transparency to really come alive, where instead of just having a manager tell somebody, yeah, you got 3.5%, um, you know, well, where did that come from? Why is it that we budgeted what we budgeted? What what does a, a normal employee, a, a, you know, a, a solid performing, middle of the performance distribution, quality worker who's paid in the middle already, like what should they have expected? And how does that 35 compare to that? Um you know, what are your policies around ad hoc adjustments, right? Now's a good time to think about the consumability and the, you know, the, the communicatability of what you do within comp. Um, this, this supports that, you know, perspective of fairness. People want to feel good about the procedures, and that helps them engage and, and understand that their pay is fair. Now is also a good time to do a pay equity audit for those who are um, you know, value the concept of pay equity, but many organizations aren't doing much yet. Um, you know, you want to know what issues exist before your employees discover them. And as transparency is increasing, they're going to discover them for you. So now is a great time to evaluate pay differences with the DEI lens. Um, also looking at things like compression and tenure-based pay equity. Just so you know what they're going to see, right? Know the answer, know the objection that's going to be raised before it gets raised to you. Uh, be proactive rather than reactive. And then I think the final thing um, that, that all comp leaders need to be thinking about now is helping managers. Um, if an employee has a, a concern around pay, they're likely going to go to their manager. They're not going to say, you know, I'm going to go talk to the comp analyst about that. They might, uh, but managers always the first point of contact. And the problem is managers don't think about pay every day, uh, nor should they. They have management jobs to do. Um, you know, so getting man managers aren't going to be great at having that conversation every day. Uh, but you'll want to think about what ongoing enablement do you need to provide so that they can handle those conversations as they arise. Um, I also advise uh, organizations about what messaging should come more centrally versus asking managers to have that conversation. So a good example, um, I think it's a good practice that I've used multiple times in my own operating career is around the, the merit pool. Um, so if the budget's going to be 3%, I'll use some past year examples. You know, we all know that means that most people are going to get a raise with a 2 at the beginning of it. And I found that that was really hard for managers to explain. Like, hey, you're good. I, you know, you're a great employee. Uh, you know, meeting expectations. You're in the middle of that performance. You're a core worker. But because I need to reward somebody else 5%, I have to give you 25 or 2 um, That's It was just a hard conversation for a manager to have over and over again. Um, you know, so we, st we had stumbled onto this practice where, Hey, let me be that guy. Right. So I, a human, the leader of the rewards function would tell all employees, you know, most workers should expect an increase that begins with the two. Um, and we even told them, look, we're going to default the number for your managers as 2.0, right? 2%. That's the, the mode, um, 
of the distribution. Most people will get a 2% increase. And managers love that because it helped them have a better conversation. Um, it was true, right? We weren't lying. It was accurate mathematically. Um, you know, communicating the average means a lot of people are disappointed. Communicating the mode means that half people <laughs> are probably right or happier. Um, so that helped managers be more productive in their conversation about, well, why did you get more than that? Um, how does this line up with the performance message we need to have? Um, and managers just went into those conversations with a less confrontational mindset, so they were more empathetic. Um, you know, it was just a more enabling discussion rather than a, an argumentative one. So just an example about you know, a message that can be hard to communicate or just difficult, that doing it centrally can, can be more productive. So that's just a, you know, a, a summary of the blog post that's out there. Again, I'll put it in the show notes around, you know, how do you make pay transparency work for you now, given the changes that have happened? So with that, I think we'll wrap up for, for this week. Um, just, you know, our take on a few hot topics. As always, thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Uh, if you found this helpful, of course, there's a few things you can do. Uh, go ahead and share a link to it on LinkedIn so that your network can find us just the same. And of course, if you can click the like button or the subscribe button within your favorite podcast platform, that makes it easier uh, for you to stay in touch with our content as well as for others to find us. So once again, thanks for listening and until next time. <laughs>